This is Nemeth Estate Mosa for NEJM Catalyst. I'm speaking today with Dr. Karthik Shivasunkar, the Medical Director of Quality, Safety, and Equity at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. In this role, he is focused on advancing a culturally competent healthcare system that delivers high quality and safe care to every patient, regardless of race, ethnicity, social class, or language proficiency. Clinically, he is trained as a psychiatrist. Today, we will be discussing the critical interplay between health equity and quality and safety initiatives, which have traditionally been addressed in silos by healthcare organizations. Karthik and his team at the Brigham have launched a creative, integrated approach that we can all learn from. Thanks for joining us today, Karthik. Our audience will benefit from hearing your insights. Thank you for having me. Can you briefly summarize for us on how you and your team at the Brigham have reframed this focus on advancing equity, quality, and safety. What is the rationale and, and how is this unique from what others are doing? You know, I think that's um, the, the best place to start in terms of how do we shift the paradigm in, in healthcare and why is that important? Um, you know, it's been in the news all the time lately about uh, structural racism and um, the death of George Floyd and, and many others and the riots. And so it's, it is on people's minds, but um, we haven't really made that much headway in healthcare, or at least not as much as we should have. And part of the challenge has been that we've, we've taken the approach of um, historically hiring a few people of color, putting them in a corner of the organization, under-resourcing them, and then telling them as DE&I people to solve the problems of racism and structural discrimination in the organization. And these are systems that these individuals do not um, maintain at the end of the day or, or benefit from, and and it's it's a setup for failure. And so, how do we actually move away from that paradigm and make equity and anti-racism a part of our everyday work? How do we operationalize it? And so, quality and safety really is, I think, a powerful system that we can use to advance equity. Um, part of the reason is that we, you know, in terms of quality and safety, we're always thinking about risk at different levels, everything from the individual level all the way up to the system level. And when we think about inequities, it, it's the same sort of thing. You have implicit biases and explicit biases at the individual level, all the way up to the systemic and institutional and structural levels. And when we think about quality and safety, especially with safety, what we're thinking about is how do we redesign our systems to optimize the performance of people within those systems. So an example would be a stop sign. You know, for a stop sign to work, that means that people have to see the stop sign, you have to be awake, there can't be anything covering the stop sign. If all these different things come together, then you will stop and you won't hit that pedestrian. But that's not a resilient system. And so what would be a more resilient system would be if, for example, automated roadblocks came up so that your car literally can't pass through, which is something that you see in other countries sometimes. So the same sort of thing applies when we're talking about equity. The inequities that we see and the risks associated with them in part are being you know, translated by individuals, but for the most part, these are structural, these are systemic, they're embedded into our policies, into our practices, and so we need to redesign our systems. So just doing, for example, unconscious bias trainings at your institution is not gonna be a recipe for success. Rather, how do we then take our quality and safety infrastructure, which we've built over 30, 40 years, systematically embed equity into it, use that infrastructure to analyze risks, and then to redesign systems that 
um, optimize behavior and improve care for everybody. This notion of reframing, systematizing, and integrating uh, is, is a remarkable one. And it's one that you've had a chance to, to test and iterate uh, at, at the Brigham. What have been some early wins and successes, uh, as well as what have been some of the challenges and the trade-offs that you've had to make? You know, maybe I'll start with if it's okay with the challenges and trade-offs, um, because what we're talking about here is, is really significant cultural transformation. When you think about, for example, a risk manager or a patient family relations specialist or an HR person, they may be used to analyzing cases where there was a harm, even where an error was made. But when you add on that additional layer of a concern for discrimination or a concern for bias, even though the, the analysis itself in a lot of ways is similar, we still want to understand was there, was there a contribution of the human uh, performance level or the human behavior level or at the system level, the, the fact that it's this sort of touchy, sensitive topic for some can throw them off and then they don't know how to approach the conversation. And so one of the big challenges has been how do we train our staff who historically have not viewed their roles as being related to equity um, to be able to facilitate these really difficult, powerful conversations? How do we help them to, to build a, a container for psychological safety? So you can probe when there is a harm, whether there was a harm related to an inequity. And so I think that has been a challenge. And the, the other part of it has been the challenge just of, of colorblindness, which is, let's say an event happens on a unit and you then are having a conversation with that unit director. The typical response of a lot of hospitals is, well, we don't have bias on our unit. We don't see color on our unit. And I think that's an old mentality. It's a, it's a wrong mentality. It's not gonna get us to where we need because there is bias embedded in, in all of us and it does contribute to these risks. And so um, we have a lot of work, I think, to do to get, kind of like with patient safety 30, 40 years ago, it wasn't socialized that risks are everywhere and medical errors are happening all the time. In the same way, we need to socialize. Inequities are everywhere. They contribute to these risks, and we need to be working on them all the time. In terms of um, successes, you know, I think COVID-19 was a, a great example of how the system is, uh, how it functions, and, and how it can be really potent. So unlike a lot of systems, what we found was because we had developed this infrastructure, we had embedded equity into our reporting systems, into our all solutions, which is where people put in their safety reports or their experience reports. We didn't have to work very hard to figure out what was going on. In real time, we were getting a constant flow of information from these safety reports identifying risks across the organization. So within hours, we knew, for example, that there might be a discrepancy in who was getting access to our protective equipment, our personal protective equipment, that maybe some of our employees were being um, or having a harder time getting access, or that maybe there were problems with visitor policies, or that, that potentially were being perceived as discriminatory, even if they weren't, it was just a problem with communication. We were able to figure out that there were language barriers, that there were problems with two, with crowding on shuttles, and then difficulty with social distancing. So all of these different risks, I'm just naming a few of many, were flowing through our quality and safety system automatically getting um, triggered in terms of analysis from an equity perspective and then getting escalated up through our incident command structure. And so I think what we found was that 
we really didn't have to work very hard to figure out what was happening. Whereas for a lot of institutions, they either had to put in a lot of work in real time during the crisis, or they just it just went um, unrecognized. And um, probably it's that that latter situation that was most common. So, so I think that was a really um, great example of why the system is is a powerful one. It's it's a a detection system on one level, but it's also a way of developing systems level solutions based on individual reports. And um, and I think it's a model for, for other institutions that are interested. What is an example of solutions that were developed and implemented based on some of the findings from some of these reports that you mentioned, whether it be visitor policies or shuttle crowding or one of those other ones, how did that translate into to actionable solutions? Yeah, you know, language I think is a, is a good one. Um, so for example, what we found, I mean, we know now that COVID-19 is disproportionately impacting historically oppressed populations, populations of color and, and um, non-English speaking populations. It's something we should have known about and anticipated, but you know, there was still some level of surprise when, it, when that data came out. And we saw that reflected in our patient population, that we had a higher proportion of, of patient of color and non-English speaking patients. And actually that early in the crisis, we have really robust interpreter services, but even then it wasn't quite enough to meet the demand. And so those reports were then getting uh, submitted by providers who were having trouble accessing interpreter services in, in some way. And we were then able to escalate that to incident command and then work with our, our leadership to, for example, purchase more iPads and to deploy those iPads on the, the key units so that there were even more opportunities for, for virtual translation. And iPads was part of a, a broader solution in the context of COVID and thinking about how do we keep social distance and reduce the number of people in rooms. Another example would be uh, protective equipment, personal protective equipment. So the, the policies around COVID-19 were shifting a lot early on. And so there was a lot of confusion about who should have PPE, like who should be getting an N95 mask and who should be getting a non-N95 mask. And so that information wasn't necessarily making its way to every part of the organization. So we have employees, for example, in environmental services and food services who um, may be less likely to speak English as their first language, who may be less likely to have access to email. And so what we were finding was through these safety reports that some of these staff in transport and security and environmental services were reporting difficulties getting access to PPE. And so we were able to then very quickly catalyze or, or um, activate our, our leadership to um, update our policy, to basically say, let's just make this a universal policy. Everyone wears a mask and, and to simplify the policy around N95 masks. And then we went a step further and we actually held 100 plus sessions led by our leaders for these groups in person with social distancing because um, some of them may not have access to virtual technology where we went over the data, where we answered their questions, where we connected them with resources and so on. And we did that in five different languages. And so that, those are two um, of, of a number of different examples of how a single safety report or, or a cluster of safety reports can then lead to pretty big interventions. Independent of their organization's priorities to improve equity, uh, let's say, and 
somebody works as a frontline provider in a place that doesn't necessarily have the resources uh, or as sophisticated in, in these types of systems as the Brigham, what does a frontline provider or clinical leader do within their own sphere of influence to make things better and provide more equitable care to their patient population? Yeah, well, so the first thing I would say is that it doesn't have to be a resource-intensive effort in the, in the sense that we already have invested in most hospitals millions of dollars into quality and safety. So we have people who are trained in analyzing these events. It's the additional layer of just asking that question, are there inequities associated with this risk? Now, that's as simple as, as it could be, and that simple version is still powerful in itself because if you're not asking the question, you're not going to identify things. There's, of course, a lot more that you can add in. You can add in how do you um, standardize the collection of stratified data, how do you build this into your databases and your reporting structures and all of that. But at, at its root, all we're saying is very simple. We're saying do what you're doing with quality and safety. Now just add this additional layer of thinking about equity every single time with every single case. I'm harping on this as opposed to the individual because it's really easy for institutions to take, make an excuse and say, well, we don't have the resources and to put it on the individual. But here's the reality. Our individual providers, they're burnt out. They're overwhelmed. And so it's really not fair to continue to ask more of them. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't be asking them to treat their patients and adjust equitable way. We absolutely should. And, and there's a lot we can do there with the individual provider. But when we're talking about really addressing these deeper rooted inequities that are built on policies and practices, just changing, you know, an individual, like an, a particular individual is going to have a challenging time trying to, for example, overturn our contracting decisions. You know, I can give you all the training in the world as an individual provider, that can't change the fact that you won't be able to accept a patient because your institution hasn't contracted with whichever carrier. And so, so, so long story short, there is no excuse to not do this work. This is the work. There is no such thing as high quality and equitable care. This is the work of every healthcare institution in this country. Um, for the individual provider, what they can do, I would actually argue, is to start submitting safety reports with equity concerns. Even if your quality and safety department isn't thinking about it, force them to think about it. They're going to start getting those reports. They have to look at them. And so force them to start questioning some of the things that are happening. And, and you know, I think that in itself can be a, a simple way to start um, a domino effect. Because once they start to get these reports, hopefully it will start to pick their curiosity and, and it will go from there. What are you most optimistic about? going forward as it relates to advancing in a systematic, sustainable way, providing equitable care to all of our patients? I, I think what I'm most optimistic about is, is witnessing firsthand how organically this model evolves for an institution, so we've only, um, it, I've only witnessed it being unfolded at the Brigham, but I have been working with, for example, New York City hospitals to start to spread the motto, and I'll be working with IHI, and they're working with 26 other organizations. 
So in the, last, in the next year and a half, we're going to get a chance to test it with all of these other organizations. But what I'm, what I'm encouraged about is that once you've started this process of starting to embed equity into quality and safety, it, it takes on a life of its own. It's almost like um, the simple act of just starting to ask the question then leads to more reports being identified. More reports being identified leads to more discomfort and more questions, which then lead to <laughs> more experts being brought in. And then the realization that there are processes that are not working and then the development of efforts to address those pol those policies. And so it, it builds on itself and it doesn't all have to happen immediately, but it's, it's, a, it's a sort of um, a, a gradual change that can very quickly spread. I'll give you an example of, um, of a success that I think is an important one that highlights that. So we recently discovered that we have been uh, terminating our patients of color at different rates than our white patients. Now, this is a complicated question. I don't think it's a simple thing. Our providers are just biased against patients of color, and so they're terminating them from clinics at higher rates. It's not that simple. There's things like, um, for example, transportation. If you can't make it to your appointments and you're no-showing a lot, then a, a practice might um, terminate you. Um, so there's a lot that goes into that. But the fact that we even discovered this as a problem was not because of me, and it was not because of our DE&I colleagues. It was actually because our CMO, our, our chief medical office, and our executive patient safety director independently got curious about what's happening with terminations of our patients, asked for the data, asked for it to be stratified, and then identified that there was this potential inequity. They then handed it to ambulatory leadership to say, and activated us in, in quality, safety, and equity to say, let's work on this together and let's figure out what's going on and let's address it. And that's now led to a, a very significant research and quality improvement effort. But, you know, that happened within six to eight months of us starting this work. And so <clears throat> I couldn't imagine something like that happening two years ago or three years ago. And I think it just speaks to the power of the model, which is, when you start to embed this into your quality and safety work, into your operations, it, it's, it socializes, it grows on itself, and, and it will lead to that sort of change, which is where the people who are leading the operational work see it as their work, and that's really the type of change that we need. Perfect. Thank you for speaking with NAJM Catalyst today, and more broadly, thank you for your leadership on this work. It is, um, it is inspiring. Thank you. Thank you.